Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's a great pleasure to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of one of Australia's most recognisable sportsmen of recent years. He netted six Olympic medals, broke multiple world records, and of course he does have that rarest of accolades, an Olympic gold medal. Michael Klim, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the introduction. It's (laughs) lovely to have you here. It is um, a great career. And we're going to talk about that as the hour unfolds. You're looking well. <laughs> what you. are you up to these days? Look, I'm, uh, you know, I've just turned 40. So oh, you poor I'm, old thing. <laughs> I've, got, I've got three kids. Rocco's in the studio behind the glass Yes, yeah, so he's there. keeping an uh, eye on things. He's, uh, he's my nine-year-old son. I've got a six-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter as well, Stella and Frankie. I'm still running the Milk & Co. business. We do uh, men's, women's, and baby skincare products. I do a little bit of health and wellness camps and retreats. and um, But pretty much Milk & Co. is my uh, my full-time sort of occupation. And But uh, running after those three. Three munchkins keeps me pretty busy and commuting between Bali and Australia where the kids reside. So it sort of uh, keeps me uh, on my toes very much so. So how many trips a year would you make between Bali and Australia? Uh, nearly 20, I would say. Really? Yeah. Does it come, become easy when you make 20 trips or is it always difficult? It is. Look, I've got a pretty good routine. I know exactly. I don't like, you know, when things don't go to plan, when the flights get cancelled, there's, there's delays, as they always are, um, puts you out a little bit. But um, look, I've got a um, yeah. It's, it's just the way it is at the moment, and um, hopefully uh, it doesn't get much easier. Towards the end of the year, I'm always looking forward to having a few weeks where I'm stationary. I'll talk more about your kids a little bit later on, but tell us something about Milk & Co. Where did it all start? Well, it's kind of a, you know, it's, I never thought I'd be a skincare entrepreneur, to be honest. Um, I was Towards the latter part of my career, I was approached by a couple of skincare brands to be an ambassador for them, and, and I thought, well, there's something in there that within a couple of months, I've got other people wanting me to promote their products. So I thought, obviously, I have a, a lot of exposed skin, especially on my, <laughs> on my head, and um, as soon naturally do have to always look after the skin, not only because of the chlorine that dries their skin out, but, you know, we're swimming in outdoor pools a lot, so, you know, sunscreen was super important. So I kind of had this incidental insight into skincare, and um, and I, was, I thought there was definitely an opportunity in the market to create a, a skincare brand that was designed and created by another Aussie bloke. So uh, I sort of, pardon the punt, but I plunged into that, and, and yeah, the skincare market was growing quite 
quickly at the time and um, a, a department store by the name of Maya took me on exclusively to, to launch the brand and um, you know the rest is kind of history now we're sort of where we're, you know, we're stocked in Chemist Warehouse and Woolies and Coles and 13 different countries around the world but it's and this is our 10th year of operation so managed to keep the business afloat for that long but now we're you know obviously trying to be kind of a sort of the essential skincare brand for the entire family so from babies to women's and, and men's I think I'm right in saying that it all started off you used to store everything in your garage didn't you oh definitely I used to even I used to do all the deliveries as well so really? I used to be literally the milkman delivering the, the products to, to people's doors pack the boxes and you know when you start your own business you know we, we yeah did it started from home packed you know pallets and, and the, the neighbours didn't like it when trucks were arriving with, with forklifts and stuff like that but um, you know obviously we, we've grown and um, you know I'm really happy and proud of the business. I'm trying to picture the reaction Michael of someone who's <laughs> ordered your skincare products and all of a sudden the doorbell rings and here you are perhaps delivering them. Did you get some reactions from people when yeah, you were look, actually dropping pe- them off? people actually uh, you know not generally is very positive because obviously you know a lot of the time people thought I was again just put my name to an, a brand and um, you know but the fact that you know not only did we create the products but the logos and we're really hands on I think it just adds credibility to what we're doing so obviously it you know wasn't always the best use of, of my time as the business grew so um, yeah but it's um, you know you have to understand every facet of the business and I, I, I enjoy that and look we sometimes get good and bad feedback from retailers and because obviously they're the, they're the people on that front line communicated with consumers so um, sometimes it's important even nowadays I go into stores and and ask you know what the retailers what the feedback they're getting I know your other sporting entertainment can be the Saints yes. St Kilda <laughs> that hasn't been all that entertaining <laughs> how many games do you get to see these days look I, I normally do half a dozen a year it's very it's tricky with with flying around I always you know tune in um, now with obviously through our all our different devices that we can sort of and online we can you know tune into all the games but um, yeah I do enjoy watching it on in the comfort of my home and, and really soaking it in and occasionally going with some of my mates to the game so uh, with all the travel, I'd normally only get to about half a dozen games a year. Are you a quiet supporter when you're sitting at home or do you yell at the television? Oh, no, I yell. And <laughs> Rocco can probably vouch for it. Oh, I he's giving at... thumbs up out there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm yelling at normally at, at, at every sport, to be honest. Um, I was yelling at the tennis the other day as well. Yeah. <laughs> what about the fact they've gone back to Moorabbin now? They've moved the base back down uh, from Seaford to Moorabbin, so they're back in the spiritual home. In Absolutely. And look, for me, that's the reason why... I'd became a Saint supporter. When I first moved to Australia in 1989, I was 11 and um, I didn't speak very good English and uh, we were sort of, uh, every weekend we were wondering what these, these mobs of people were heading down. I was just off South Road and mm. where all these mobs of people were heading down these wearing these, you know, the red, white and black scarves and jumpers and I didn't kind of understand why I had no sleeves and all this sort of stuff and I very quickly worked out obviously that the Saints were just down the road and um, and it started popping down there with, with my dad and watching the Saints and watching Plugger kicking, you know, bags of goals and, and that sort of got me hooked and, you know, I, I was always standing there in the outer, sometimes going by myself and, and um, yeah, that sort of, you know, that I became that Saints supporter from that day onwards. But, uh, yeah, so I think it's always good. I think that sentimental sort of, uh, you know, that place has got some great memories from Nicky Winmar, Plugger Lockett, you know, Stewie Lowe, all those great names. So I think it's, I think it's really, uh, I think it'll be great. Did 
you ever get to stand in the animal enclosure at Moravan? <laughs> I think so. You know, I think with Dad, I think we're, I think probably by accident, and then and then Dad said, "Let's get out of here." <laughs> yeah. It's a long way from where your journey started yeah. because you weren't born in this country. Tell us about the early years for Michael Klim. Yeah, so look, I'm, I'm, I'm Polish-born. I was born in 1977 in, in a town called Gdynia, which is in the north of Poland. My, uh, my, my dad and uh, mum, we, we decided to... Well, dad was working for the Polish consulate at the time, and um, at the age of one and a half, we moved to India. And I spent my, the first sort of, uh, you know, five years after that um, living in Bombay. So I actually I learned to swim in a country that's probably uh, <laughs> renowned for, for, for their cricketers rather than swimmers. So, um, yeah, so I had a pretty interesting upbringing. We moved back to Poland for a few more years, but then continued traveling, spent more time in Germany and Canada. And eventually, um, Dad got offered a position here in Australia. So in, in 1989, um, you know, thought there was a great opportunity for more for really us as a family my sister was a keen tennis player I was already getting into my swimming swimming quite a bit um, I sort of got into swimming my first experience was actually in 1988 watching the Seoul Olympics and um, watching the commentary over the 200 freestyle with Michael Gross and Duncan Armstrong and yeah. Matt Biondi and um, obviously Duncan Armstrong won and I never at that point I didn't know that I was going to end up in Australia swimming in the, in the green and gold but and watching the commentary in German where they obviously wanted Michael Gross, the, the albatross, to win. Yeah. Uh, that was my sort of, to this day, it's my most vivid sort of uh, Olympic moment to, that I've watched on TV from my childhood and, and that sort of kept me going. And um, to actually have met Duncan and, you know, to, <laughs> to, to you know, of obviously watching him come over the top of Matt Biondi in the last sort of, uh, uh, you know, last 50 was, was fantastic. So, yeah, so we, yeah, we arrived in, in Melbourne in 1989. It's one thing to have uh, an inspiration like that, to see a moment and say, oh, I'd, I'd like to be a part of something like that, but it's yeah. another thing to actually do it. When did you realise that you had the talent that could possibly take you to the top of your profession, your chosen sport? Look, I... There was probably one moment, one distinctive moment. I was I was fifteen, and um, but I, at, very early on, I was I was I was a success, successful junior. I, I was winning a lot of national sort of titles as a kid, and um, but there's been so many successful kids at the age of twelve, thirteen, fourteen that don't always go on, and either physically they don't develop or they find other interests. And so, I mean, I, that was my my passion was always swimming because there's all these different very variables changed in my life, languages, cities, countries, schools. I've always had this affinity with the swimming pool and I could, I don't know if it's the fact that you can have, you have the solitude, you can swim up and down the lane and you're almost untouchable. It's almost like the, the language of sport is kind of pretty familiar with no matter what country you're in. So um, so swimming for me was almost a more comfortable environment than than school, for example. And um, so I kept on progressing, but there was a, there was a national age championships and in Perth and uh, the Australian Institute of Sport had sent a couple coaches one was Gennady Turetsky who was the coach of Alexander Popov and also uh, Jim Fowley who was also a, a coach from Canada um, that Australia Rick Don Talbot had recruited to start sort of looking after some of the potential swimmers that may represent us in Sydney and um, I had a really good meet again in, in Perth and I get the tap on the shoulder and, and those two guys said they w- would like me to come out and trial 
um, to submit the Australian Institute of Sport for a camp and potentially come on scholarship the following year when I turned 16. So um, when the greatest, the coach of the greatest sprinter of all time approached me, I thought maybe there's something in that. You know, that was that was probably the moment that I had to start making decisions in my life. Am I going to continue living in Melbourne and at that point Victoria had pretty bad infrastructure in terms of sport the VIS wasn't quite as developed as what it is now Um, facilities we only had the state swimming centre down at Batman Avenue so we really um, I did make that decision to uh, mum and dad packed up the car and drove me up the the, you know the Hume Highway up to uh, up to Canberra and, and pretty much I moved out of home at the age of 16 and lived in Canberra for nearly nine years. When you were starting to take those formative steps and and you were making big strides in swimming who were the people that you met that we would know their names in swimming in years to come and and what sort of relationships and bonds did you form with them you know i've been very fortunate that the guys that i swam with from you know, from Ian to, to Grant, to, we sort of went through this journey together. We shared a lot of those, you know, the experiences, you know, simultaneously. So we had had each other to bounce off. But as a, um, I would say, Matt Dunn was my my roommate and and teammate for many years with with Gennady, and he, he you know, you know, we we literally spend every day together for almost six or seven years. So not only was he a great friend, but he was, you know, my support network as well. Um, um, and and then Gennady Turetsky became almost my father figure because I moved out of home and, you know, mum and dad, as much as they could come and visit, they did. But, um, you know, basically, you know, I was I would say and do, I mean, I would do everything Gennady would say pretty much. So, um, yeah, so th- those people were pretty in- influential in my life. You mentioned a couple of names there, Michael, Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett, and both have had difficult periods in their life. Are, are they people that you've been in contact with when they've been going through the ups and downs that life can throw at you? Well, absolutely. And I even actually had a swim with Hacky yesterday, to Did be you? honest. Yeah. How's so. he going? He's, he's looking much fitter than I am. <laughs> he was, he was uh, look, he's, uh, he's, he's very healthy. He's in a good headspace and he's looking after himself. He's, uh, yeah, he's good. And he's obviously, you know, I think he's recognized that he had to make a few changes. And um, so I'm, I'm really happy for him that he's, he's you know, he's on the, on the great road to recovery now. So, um, yeah, definitely. I think it's a, it's a pretty... Um, I think we realise how hard it is to, to finding that that you know or filling that void that that gets sometimes created after sport and if it's you know we our identity is so defined where, while we're swimming you know like we're and that that life is so simplistic too it's it's and it's a very selfish existence sometimes at an athlete and you know when that stops and you need to find the same same sense of purpose and same sense of passion and you know it sometimes it can be tricky so um, and you know some people and the unfortunate thing is you know some people do it behind closed doors we don't hear about it and you know in their case you know when people have some struggles unfortunately it's in the public eye and um, I I think he's had some great support now and you know I think we'll recognize it he just needed some help and some guidance and um, you know I'm really happy for him that he's heading in the right direction. Let's take our first break and when we come back we'll talk about the start of the big competitions I remember being in a beautiful place called Victoria Canada in yeah, 1994, yeah. and that was one of the first big steps for you. Yeah, yeah. Michael Clem is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. More with Michael after the break. Yeah! 
You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And Michael Clem is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Michael, we spoke about the early steps and then came the big competitions. 95, was that the first of your big ones? Yeah, that was the first one. I, I was lucky enough to, to qualify for the 95 Pan Pacific Games, which um, I won the 200 freestyle at the trials. And um, I was still a, a, a young kid. I was 18 years of age or 17, actually, when I first won that title. So, um, yeah, so when to when to the Olympic pool in in in, in Georgia, but uh, uh, it was I was you know I was still a young kid when it came to that that sort of stage and, and didn't do all that well but um, it was uh, 96 the 96 Olympics trials when and I got to swim ne- next to one of my great mates Daniel Kowalski and qualify for the, for the 200 free and the 100 fly with Scotty Miller um, unfortunately again didn't call quali- I was I was ranked number one in the world uh, after the trials and went into walk down that corridor walking into Georgia Tech at the pool and saw my name at the top of the list as a top qualifier and um, last heat of the morning first day but uh you know I was already at that point I felt I mean I had a pretty good lead up and um but the you know it, on reflection I can that that the occasion really sort of got the better of me um, did you know that was happening at the time or did you feel as though you were not. in control I was sort of I was a little bit all over the place the you know the, we trained in the same pool in that pool in the lead up and you know we always had our lane to ourselves and we had plenty of space and I walked on I like sort of leaving my warm up to the last minute and um, I don't like having too much dead time before my race and then so I walked into the pool couldn't find Gennady couldn't find the Aussie team didn't have a place to put my bag down (laughs) sort of all so um, obviously down the track in my career I was much better in sort of adapting to sort of when things didn't go my way but there was almost the first time I was in an environment where I was completely out of sorts and um, and and I dropped the bundle and you know I stood up on the blocks for the heat in the last event and I swam some at reasonable time, but missed the final by 0.06 of a second. And, um, my, you know, the time that I swam in the B final would have probably got me, you know, silver, I think. So it's certainly a, a pretty pretty tough pill to swallow. And that the feeling that I had actually that day <laughs> and the feeling that I had after the race, it's something that gave me so much motivation for the career afterwards that I, it's almost I had never felt that, that much nerves, unsettlement. Like, I, it's sort of, I, I, I never wanted to feel feel that again so my whole career pretty much was shaped on from that moment and um yeah I changed a lot of things from my technique I was trying to swim like Alexander Popov because obviously he became my training mate a couple of years prior um I started working with the, the suit development with Speedo at the time and they, they were coming into into fruition at the time as well um changed my my training methods as well and also started developing that straight arm stroke which people probably end up knowing me for so mm. um I needed to make changes and probably the biggest thing that that um that influenced my career was my mindset that um, I used to probably I embarked on this mission of racing and I wanted to race as much as I could because I was I didn't want to feel those nerves and and you know I wanted basically for to be comfortable on the block so I embarked on racing 100 or did about 150 competitive starts in one calendar year so I went from everything from racing at the Lake Billy Griffin meet to to a local championships and here in Melbourne or the Pan Pacific Games or 
whatever it may be. So I did 150 starts and recorded every single race. And so it, that whole process for me of getting ready and getting up on the blocks um, became automatic. So, and every if it was a heat, I'd be pretending I was getting out there to try and break a world record and even though it didn't happen that often um, but I still had that same intention and by the time I got actually that um, it you know the, the change was so quick that by the time I went to the world championship trials in, in, in October of 97 I was already a different swimmer completely different and, and the 98 world championships was kind of my defying the week and yeah. I was able to implement all those all those changes that I'd made. You mentioned the 98 world championships you performed so well. Must have seemed like a long time between the 98 Worlds and your home Olympic Games. It must have seemed at times as though it was never going to come around. Yeah. Look, for me, I still look at that. I mean, 20 years ago since Perth, (laughs) unbelievable how quickly time flies. But um, that was, um, I was asked today actually what was my probably my most memorable individual performance and that week def- definitely was because I was able to you know I remember sitting down with Gennady after after the Olympics in in 96 and and we worked out exactly what we we're going to do we um, and then you know working on those and traveling and racing and we had a really good plan and and when the plan kind of comes into fruition so quickly and breaking the world record in the 100 fly at the trials um, which was a, a story in itself because I swam 70, 75 metres in um, prior <laughs> before actually doing that in the actual race um, because the full start, the full start rope didn't go down properly in the 15 metre mark. The officials didn't run up to the other end fast enough again. So we actually, myself, uh, Scott Goodman, Adam Pine, Jeff Hugo, we're all in that, that event. So they gave us about 20 minutes to rest and we had to pop up on the blocks again and then I did a 100 flyer to qualify and broke the world record at the same time. Wow. <laughs> and look, yeah, and that's that was probably the best example that I was ready for because yeah. you know I did all these things, random things, where I travel and trained and whatever, and um, you know, and I was and and Gennady was interviewed about you know is Michael going to be able to handle this situation? He's like, we've done everything possible, we've mm. done all these different variables, so he's ready to take it on. So um, and look for me that that the Perth Championships are so I remember them fondly. I love swimming outdoors, and that was probably uh, one of the last of meets that the major meets was um, for me that I swam well outdoors and um, and having family and friends and you know all the, all the great Australian public that loved swimming was 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 amazing so uh, it definitely um, changed my life that week and so did what happened in 2000 because <laughs> of the fact that it was the home Olympic Games it wasn't outdoors it was in that brilliant stadium with so many people all the yep, way up yep. the back there where you became not only a household name, but you became probably the world's most famous air guitarist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Tell us about the story of that. It's a pretty um, look. It's it's quite. It's I it, it still sort of you know we I I saw Chris Fadler had the Grand Prix over the weekend and um, and we had a, had a great. Well, we always have a bit of a chat about it, and we <laughs> because you know because of that moment we've got this you know this bond that will live forever. But it is it's sort of um, we so to give you to give you an idea what happened. So we were actually staged in Melbourne in the in the in the lead up to to the Sydney Olympics, and we were staying just. On just not, not not far from here on St Kilda Road, and uh, and the US team arrived, and and Gary Hall, who was the American speedster, 
and they uh, um, and, and he's a pretty confident young <laughs> very man. Very confident, in, interesting character. But he's a, you know, he obviously used uh, he was an extrovert at times, but an introvert at other times. And he uh, he must have been a little bit jet lagged. And he said uh, he was carrying a guitar case because he's, he's a keen musician. And and they uh, obviously the Aussie media stuck a microphone in his mouth and or next minutes and and said, "How are you going to go against the Australians?" And he said, oh, "We're going to smash them like guitars." <laughs> Um, and we basically the next morning we woke up and there was a paper in front of the uh, the hotel door and it says you know obviously headline uh, Aussies will be smashed like guitar so we basically we knew that the 4 by 3 freestyle relay being on the first day we almost had a responsibility now with the with the gauntlet set by uh, by Gary Hall and um, almost you know we didn't want to be bullied <laughs> by, mm-hmm. especially by the Americans but the the task was enormous you know the Americans had four guys in the top 10 in the world um, I was the only one in the top top 10 ranked number one number three sorry so we had we had a pretty enormous task if we wanted to get anywhere near the Americans so we had um, we had a pretty big squad actually uh, Brett Hawke who's, who was on that team wasn't in the 4x1 freestyle squad but because he had a a great background in the NC2A system. We actually in- involved them in a lot of the planning and stri- strategic work and changeovers, etc. Um, so we knew that the Americans, they love leading from the front. They had never lost the event since the inception. So the only way we could potentially potentially beat them is they put them off their game early, make them make them over-race. Put the doubts in their head. The doubts in their head. And the, with, you know, Neil, Neil Walker and Gary Hall, they're not really used to coming coming from behind so um and basically i remember sitting around the round table and they said who wants the responsibility of leading off first and um i, I was swimming pretty well you know i won the trials in, in 48.5 and at that time i was you know ranked ranked third in the world and i was swimming i was in pretty good form so i put up my hand and luckily enough i signed the race of my life to this day it's still my best time and a world record at at, at the time as well so. there was no luck about it that, that was <laughs> was a brilliant swim that was the reason that we won the gold medal because you gave the team the advantage that they were able to defend yeah it was it was you know it, and it and it sort of um it, it followed that plan perfectly because we had the, all our all our guys had great back ends so from from chris fardler ash callis and and obviously thorpey um they may not always had the fastest splits amongst them against the americans but they always had the much stronger last 15 to 20 meters so um that you can make up so much ground in the last few strokes and if you even if you watch the commentary of or the last 20 metres of Thorpe against Hall, um, you know, he makes up, you know, I would say it like over a metre. So, um, yeah, so, was, and, you know, to be able to look up at the crowd and to see, you know, 17,000 people just screaming and, you know, even good old Dawn going yeah. up. And then, and then John Howard and Greg Norman, just everyone that was, you know, great icons of sport. And, and it was just, you know, and that, yeah, it was one of those great moments where, you know, the, the true the underdog comes through and you know we had this really great mateship and the guys that sort of not only swam the heat but then obviously Brett Hawke and then and then the finals team at uh, yeah to this day it's it's a special moment so who was the one Clemmy who came up with the idea <laughs> that if we win this we're playing air guitars. Oh, it was pretty spontaneous. It was right behind the blocks after we really we won. It just happened. It just happened. So there's certainly, yeah, I'm, I must say, I've never sort of 
pre-planned a, a victory salute. Kind of a lot of those things are very spontaneous and and yeah, sometimes <laughs> regretful. But this one was one that we, uh, I guess, it's become iconic really in a way. So um, yeah, so we've. <laughs> I think it might have been Thorpey and I said it might have said something. Let's play the air guitar or something like that. But Fantastic. Um, yeah. So look, even walking through the crowds occasionally, people give me the air guitar salute. <laughs> it is one of the most indelible sporting images this country has ever produced. <laughs> I think everyone who saw it will remember forever. Yeah, that it, it was. I guess it's, and it also set the tone for the rest of that that, that swim meet for yeah. our team. We had obviously, you know, Thorpe. He had a few other swims. Um, you know, Hacky won this 1500. Mm. Susie had a great meet. So it, we did have a had, had a pretty good Olympics after that. And um, you know, to 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 win gold on the first night it was pretty special. One last thing. Let's go from the end of the race to the start of the race. It nearly didn't happen. What happened before the race? <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, we were, we actually took a bit of a punt on on using Thorpey because he he wasn't all that proven in a hundred freestyle and and you know, but we knew that his composure um, could have you know could, could have really made the difference and it ended up making the difference. But he almost didn't make the race because he he just won the four hundred freestyle about an hour and a bit before and he went swimming to swim down. So he only brought four suits with him to the pool. And he had one that he used in the 400. Um, so he, you know, ch- chucked that one away. And then he was putting on another suit. And um, and we were, there was only three of us in that marshing room. And we had actually Jan Talbot, Don Talbot's wife, was the manager standing next to us, just advising us that he was getting ready. But he had a suit malfunction with the, with it putting on the second suit, that tour. Um, so then, um, you know, we were all march- we were all actually lined up to, mar- to march out. And there was still no Thorpey. So you can imagine... Like, like the, that in, the, in an environment where you've got all this bravado and all this testosterone in the room and it's all about almost psyching out your competitors. You've got Americans that are quite loud and boisterous. You've got South Africans. You've got all these guys that are like really trying to get, psych each other out. There's only three three Aussies and little Jan Talbot <laughs> who's about five foot tall. So we were um, and then you know with five with the five minute call we get you know we're saying where is where's Thorpe? He's like he's on, he's torn he's torn the next suit. He's on his last suit. At that point, apparently, the entire Australian support staff team was trying to help Thorpey get into his last suit. And if you watch the telecast, we've actually started walking around onto pool deck, and Thorpey's still not there. So yeah. he, he kind of trails us by about 20 metres with only a towel and goggles and a cap on his head. One last thing about Sydney. Do you regret that you weren't able to get the individual gold medals because you were in a position where you could have done that? You went out really hard in the yeah. 100 free and the 100 fly. Yeah, yeah. And probably the early effort took its toll. Would you swim those races differently if you had the chance to again? No, I think you know. I think that was always the way I used to swim. And my, you know, if I ever tried to, you know, back end my races or play around with my tactic, it never really worked. So it was really more um, probably some of my management, my self management throughout probably that first week emotionally with the the highs of winning the, you know, the four by one and the four by two. Um, I think I started getting quite fatigued emotionally rather than physically. And um, I did bounce back quite well to, for that 100 fly. And, and, and I, swam, I, swam, I felt great going out and, um, and, and 
last floor lander the Swede sort of you know beat me by about point one two of a second. But um, you know it was you know I was ranked number one in the world for almost six years in that mm-hmm. event. It was it was it must say it was definitely a tough pill to swallow because it you know having the world record and being ranked number one for so long, I felt that that was the race for me to win, and um, it's probably one that got away. And unfortunately, I don't think I could have done anything else from a tactical point of view. I think there's a lot of uh, world record holders and world champions that don't, unfortunately don't win the Olympic gold, and I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, well, all in all, a truly remarkable moment and mm. a truly remarkable time in Australian <laughs> sport. We'll take a break and we'll come back and talk about the continuation of the journey for Michael Klim. On the other side of the break, this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. <laughs> You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. What a privilege it is to have Michael Klim as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Just before we move on to the rest of your career, Michael, yeah. we spoke about Gary Hall yeah. and you were telling me in the break you're actually still in contact with him. Well, yeah, I am actually. And, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, people sort of think that Gary's a sort of, uh, you know, real uh, probably, uh, you know, outspoken and, and larrikin in terms of the sport and probably, uh, but he's actually a, a, a true sportsman because he was the first one to, sh- to shake all of our hands after that that 4x1 freestyle relay and and continued to... He was actually in touch with me prior to the Olympics in in 2000 and and we've been in in contact ever since and on Facebook it's great. He helped me with some some medical things that I needed with my eye. His dad's an eye doctor and um, so yeah so it's it's actually uh, that race actually (laughs) brought us closer together. Oh that's a great story and they're the sort of people you can respect. They can be mouthy and they can say what they like before the race, but if they're coming up and shaking your hand afterwards, then you absolutely. Yeah. And look, he, he um, you know, he he put our sport on the map. His races between, you know, between Alex Popov, those uh, those battles he had in '96 was uh, was you know he was you know he was one of the great, most respected freestylers in the world. Well, next time you're talking to him on behalf of all Australian <laughs> sports fans, tell him thank you for giving us that moment where we we'll saw do, you play we'll the do. air guitar. Uh, Sydney was always going to be a hard act to follow because of yep. all of the emotion, because it was. Uh, home Olympic Games. Mm. Did you experience any sort of letdown after Sydney, do you think? Unfortunately, I had a, a, I guess, an an incident that for me almost... It initiated a bit of a letdown because it. Um, I was actually went straight back into training pretty quickly. I had a. I didn't have a very a long break at all. I, was, I sort of felt like I wanted to keep the momentum going, and um, we were doing some cross training and we were playing some basketball, and and I sort of in our com- competitive nature I was you know I was I think I jumped I don't know what for and um, and then rolled my ankle really really badly and broke a bone, and that was was sort of in the lead up to the uh, to the world championships in 2001 and that was kind of the first incident that kind of followed the chain of other ones uh, from then I had some back issues and from the back issues sort of followed on and I had some shoulder problems so there was the, all these kind of and that, that started um, started having some more uh, some doubts mentally in terms of getting ever back to the level that I was in Sydney and even qualifying for another Australian team I missed the you know I missed the 2002 Com Games because of injury and 
then. Um, I did go to 2003, but it was it was it be- started becoming a struggle, and I started not really. Um, I was I used to overtrain in a sense to give me mental toughness and that edge, um, but I started being able to be <laughs> kind of annoyed with myself and with my body, but not being able to do that anymore. So that was uh, that was a little bit of a letdown for me. One last question about your swimming career. You spoke before about the solitude that you felt and the almost inner peace when you were in the pool. It was your yeah. place. It was yeah. where you felt best at home. Yeah, yeah. Swimmers often talk about the black line, though, yeah, and the yeah. effect of the black line. Did you ever get the black line effect? Did you ever think, why am I staring at this bloody thing every day? Not really. I sort of, you know, I, people ask me, you know, where did you get the motivation? What gave you the drive? And it's funny, I can't really put a finger on it because I sort of, for me, it, I always had this p- sense of purpose. And it's, and, it, and it's people say, oh, did your parents, you know, push you into this sport? Do they motivate you to keep going? And, you know, it's, you know, from an early age, it was one of those things that I felt like I was, you know, as I said, you know, I traveled, I had all these different things, and I found my affinity with the sport very early on, and, and it just became my passion. And when you when you enjoy the process of, you know, for me, of, of improving and pushing the envelope and trying to, you know, I was starting to really being able to affect the sport through, you know, my technique and my times and, and making a mark. I, I really, you know, and, and for me, swimming was almost, I've realized now, then on reflection, and it's quite meditative. It was very meditative. It was. It know, was your release in lots of ways. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you know that that you know that enjoying that movement through the water. I, I still swim regularly now, just more from a, from from a mental point of view rather than physical. But it's uh, so yeah. I, I I really enjoyed the process. So I was again. I, I spoke about it just recently. I mean, the the racing part was you know there's something that people see us and and it's actually one of Michael Phelps's quotes is we're in the limelight. You know, that's what people see. But it's the things that people don't see that we do in the dark almost before the sun comes mm. up. But, you know, that's it's and that's kind of uh, I like the grit and the grind of it and, and the prices and the, you know, getting up in the morning where you don't really want to. And and, you know, walking across in, for example, in Canberra it was minus four or five degrees and, <laughs> and tr- you know, trying to jump in the pool and do your seven Ks. You know, they're the people that that's they're that those two or three hours in the morning where, you know, that. I used to really enjoy, it, to be honest. What time do you set the alarm for these days? As the habit continues, well, I've got a, I've got a, th- I've got a few living alarms with me actually. <laughs> so the kids tend to, uh, the kids tend to get up pretty early. So um, yeah, I've actually got a pretty well inbuilt body clock now. So I'm, I'm always up around six o'clock. I'll bet you have after all of these years. We're just about out of time. We'll take our final no break worries. and come back with some final thoughts from Michael Klim on the other side of the break on a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebration. Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. Our last segment with Michael Klim. Australian Olympic champion and it's been great to have his company on a special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. I was just thinking though, Michael, we may not be able to afford you in future because I think we've got a budding producer in the control room. <laughs> Rocco's going all right in there. He's doing very well. He's very comfortable. He's going from desk to desk. <laughs> Sorry, man, you might be in trouble, but yeah, no, he's uh, yeah, he's telling me what to do as well with the headphones. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he seems to think the show's going well. He just told me, good job, oh, that's so good. that's okay. That's great. <laughs> uh, obviously, your children are very important to you. You spoke about 
about being in the limelight, one of the um, difficulties, I guess, of famous people in sport is that your personal life's also become public. Mm-hmm. And a lot of your life in recent times has been lived out in the social yep. pages and in other areas of the paper. Yep. Did, do you find that intrusive? Look, it's... I've I've made a really conscious decision not to even read what's written, and I don't look and you know try and source stuff that's been published, and um, it's just a fact, unfortunately, that people will will comment and write things about us. So it's you know, but it is I'm not Robinson Crusoe going through what you know if it's if it's going through a a divorce or whatever it might be. So um, it's basically, you know, I think for for me, you know, just working out what is best for my kids and my, myself and my partner now. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's it's just making sure that, you, you know, I think trying to live a really well-balanced life and um, it, you know, people let it get, if you can, if you let it get affect you, then, then it will. But I think, um, you know, I'm pretty comfortable not knowing what's out there. And just in closing, uh, the cricket scandal, which has broken recently, I think has affected all of us. Mm. When swimming went through its difficult times yep. and all of the still knock stories yep. and, and the difficult stories that surrounded swimming, did you feel in any way let down by the next generation because you guys had been such great ambassadors for your sport. Did you feel as though those athletes were tarnishing the brand to any degree or do you think it was just overstated? Look, I think it was, um, you know, it was probably unfortunate that it happened and at the, obviously, the, certainly, certainly the timing of it and around, obviously, with London and um, and because we were, we did have such a great team from you know your Magnusons and Amons and obviously we had the op- opportunity of of I think eclipsing at what we did in in Sydney in that four by one, um, and a lot of those guys were involved in that. So um, I, I don't think there was a lot of malice in in what they they did. It's probably some of the real bad decisions on their part, and I think they I'm, I'm a, and I know they're very regretful. You could have all their faces pretty much spoke <laughs> of, yeah. of that, and you know. Um, so look, it was disappointing, but I think if if anything, the team did learn a very very valuable lesson from it. Um, there was a lot of changes that were implemented after that, and um, so I think it's it, as as hard as it was at the time. I think it probably you know kicked a few things into gear for f- to make changes, and um, so I think that the, the t- I mean I was lucky enough to travel with the team in the lead up to Rio, and even though potentially we didn't have the 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 meet that we wanted to have. But I think in terms of from a cultural point of view, you know, the team is in, 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 in a very great shape. And, you know, having people like Kate Campbell, that's, you know, and a great ambassador. You've got, you, you know, Cameron McAvoy, now Carl Chalmers. Um, you know, we've got some, you know, Mac Hortons of the world, Emma McKeown. So we've got, you've got some great, you know, you know swimmers that have experienced the highs and have been in, in, in that limelight a bit as well. And we've got some great up-and-comers, I think, now as well. So, um, so. I think the lessons were hopefully learnt and and implemented some changes as well. 
It's been so enjoyable to sit down and share a moment with you. Uh, I mentioned before we actually started this that one of the previous moments that I shared with you was in a very soggy (laughs) mounting yard at Flemington when I think you were one of the Melbourne Cup ambassadors many years ago. Yeah, many years ago. And it was a bit damp that day. It was. Look, I I don't mind the dampness, but that was a bit too much. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, better in the pool rather than the mounting yard. That's right. It is truly one of the most remarkable stories in Australian sport, all the way from Poland to Olympic champion, (laughs) now to skincare entrepreneur. It's been a wonderful wonderful journey and it's been great to share Thank it with you. you. Had a great time. Thanks for talking to me. And thanks for bringing Rocco in too. <laughs> yeah. And when he becomes a famous radio producer in years to come, exactly. hopefully we'll get mates rates and a discount. Yeah, I hope so. And don't press delete on anything. So no. I want to keep this segment forever. Yeah, just keep your, <laughs> keep your fingers up. You just said thank you in my hands there. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you both here. Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Michael Klim joining us on a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll be back next week, same time, right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.